Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, all. It's December 10th, and we hope you had a fine week and are in for an even finer weekend. Our podcast guest for this episode is Andrew Chen, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and a prolific writer about growth marketing, who has poured some of his past conclusions and many new ones into a book that HarperCollins published this week called The Cold Start Problem. We talk with Andrew about the book and much, much more. But first, let's take a look at a story that is both shocking and unintentionally hilarious and that had tongues in Silicon Valley wagging all week. Karma is a bitch. Today, Better.com CEO Vishal Garg announced that he was taking time off effective immediately in the wake of firing 900 people on a three-minute Zoom call and then claiming that many of the terminated were stealing from the company by working an average of two hours a day while clocking in eight hours plus a day in the payroll system. Garg apologized to his staff for last week's bloodbath, but it was too little too late. In addition to losing three top executives who quit in protest, the digital mortgage startup has decided to postpone a merger with a SPAC backed by SoftBank and Aurora Acquisition Group to the tune of $750 million. The board announced that a third-party firm will do a leadership and cultural assessment in order to build a long-term sustainable and positive culture at Better, to which we say, good luck with that. As one anonymous employee told TechCrunch's Mary Ann Azevedo, Garg leads by fear. Nothing is ever good enough. In addition, Garg has a history of berating others, including calling one top investor sewage and an old private equity Neanderthal, in an email sent to 70 other members of Better.com's investment syndicate. He also told employees that they should work on Indigenous Peoples Day in order to earn the company capital and therefore our freedom. And then there is this jewel from Forbes. In a 2019 deposition, Garg told a former business partner, once the best man at his wedding, that he was going to staple him against a fucking wall and burn him alive. Any board in its right mind would have realized that Garg is poison and fired him after his erratic investor email, let alone his decision to fire 900 people on a three-minute Zoom call. We are guessing Garg has a card up his sleeve, such as maybe dual-class voting rights, that is preventing the board from canning him. Whatever the case, one thing is clear. The future for Better.com looks worse with Garg in the picture. Next up, our chat with Andrew Chen of Andreessen Horowitz. But first, a word from our sponsor. Affinity is changing the way VCs manage relationships and increasing deal flow. By aggregating the data exhaust produced by daily interactions and communications and analyzing it with machine learning, Affinity delivers up-to-the-minute insights into professional relationships, unlocking new introductions to key decision-makers, and giving you a holistic view of your team's networks in a centralized, automatically updated database without any manual upkeep. Affinity works with over 1,600 investment firms across venture capital, investment banking, private equity, and consulting, where sales are more personal, collaborative, and driven by relationships. 
Affinity, opening doors to help you close deals faster. Learn more at affinity.co slash strictlyvc. That's affinity.co slash strictlyvc. And now our interview with Andrew Chen. We're so excited to have you, Andrew Chen, joining us today. For listeners who don't know, Andrew is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, which he joined after leading Uber's writer growth product teams for several years. And before that, running his own venture-backed company that I know you said was initially seed-funded by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz before they launched what's become one of the most powerful investment firms on the planet. Andrew is on the boards of All Day Kitchens, Clubhouse, Substack, Snack Pass and Hip Camp, among others, and has also been writing about how startups can grow fast and with massive engagement for years. Andrew, I think I might have started reading your blog posts beginning back around 2007. So, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to me how, how prolific you've been over the years. First off, given how busy you are and with so much of your content already in the world, why write this new book, The Cold Start? What do you think that people still misunderstand about how to scale up a company? Yeah, well, it is a really fun year to have the cold start problem come out to audiences because this is the year where a lot of technology and a lot of Silicon Valley and that state of mind is now distributing amongst many, many new tech hubs all over the US and all over the world. And the reason why I wanted to work on this book is really to try to take the essence, the secret of why a lot of Silicon Valley's most successful tech companies, and these are companies like Airbnb and Uber, but also B2B like GitHub and Dropbox and Zoom and Marketplace and consumer companies like Instagram and Reddit and Clubhouse. And what is the secret about them that makes them as successful as they are? And so the book really crystallizes this style of product, which is a product that connects people with each other. That's really at the core of what a network effect is. It's a product that gets more useful as more people use them. And to talk through what does it take to build one of these and start one of these and get it off the ground and launch it and to solve the cold start problem as doing that and then how to scale them and how to deal with the inevitable set of competitors that are going to come after. So we obviously want people to go out and buy this book, but <laughs> to give people a little bit of a taste of what's in it, I was listening to you talking recently with Tim Ferriss, a conversation I really enjoyed, and you surfaced a lot of anecdotes that readers can probably find in the book. But you talked, for example, about the earliest days of Tinder to highlight how a team can overcome a cold start. I wasn't aware of that story beforehand. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah, well, so one of the fun things in the book is that it's really 30 plus case studies on everything from the, the interviews that I had with folks at Twitch and Tinder and also Zoom and Slack and, and then also a bunch of case studies studying the invention of credit cards and, and the creation of chain letters and coupons and some of these things that are from 100 years ago, but are super relevant. And so for the Tinder team, what is so fascinating about my time that I spent with Sean Rad, and I was an advisor to the company many years back. And so these were from a whole series of conversations, both from many years back, as well as for the book specifically. Dating apps have this really important quality to them, which is if no one that you're interested in is using a dating app, what's going to happen is you're going to download the dating app, you're going to open it up, you're going to swipe through a couple people, and then you're just going to leave. <laughs> that's like, that's, right. that's what happens. 
And similarly, if you're using Tinder or Hinge or Bumble or one of these other products and you swipe through and you find a lot of people that are really what you're interested in, then you're going to stick around. You're going to keep coming back to the app. You're going to message people and so on and so forth. And so what that tells you is dating apps are in this category where there's a cold start problem when you're getting going. And then once you are big enough, you then get to a state where you can grow it and you can grow virally. You can grow it into the multi-decade billion dollar company that Tinder is today. And so Sean Rad and the team built the app. V1 was very good. It had swiping, it had profile photos, it had all the features that you'd want. And then they invited a bunch of their friends just manually. And these friends were just not sticking. There weren't enough profiles. How do you get hundreds of people that are all desirable to all want to use the app all at the same time? The way they did it was they went to the USC campus, which was nearby and where a lot of the founders had gone to school. And they decided that they were going to sponsor a birthday party for one of the folks in the sorority system there and throw this big party, invite hundreds of people. They had bouncers in front of the party so that you had to download Tinder in order to get started. And it was a cool party. But the next day they opened up the app and they were like, wow, these are all these people that I did not get a chance to talk to. And Sean really attributes that first party with the 500 people for helping him take over the USC campus and then creating the, the playbook to then go after all the other schools and to throw a ton of parties focusing on schools in, in the South in particular, where the Greek system is very strong and to execute that playbook. And that's what got them their first couple million users. I, I thought... Your point about these atomic networks, as you call them, was curious. How do you figure out what size this needs to be? Obviously, in the case of Tinder, it sounds like you're saying it was 500 people. How much of that is gut instinct versus a formula? Yeah, well, I think that conceptually, you can start with the idea that a Zoom conversation is useful, even with two or three people on it. A Slack instance at work is useful if you have your five or 10 coworkers on it. And those are really small atomic networks, which is great because when you have this small size, it is so much easier to get your product off the ground. On the other hand, something like Airbnb, something like Tinder, something like Uber, you need hundreds of participants on the network at the same time in order to use it. So I think one is just reasoning conceptually and thinking about, is this a two-person thing, a 10-person thing, or like a 100-plus person thing that you need to build? So I think that's one very important part. The second part I think that is really important is you can actually look at the data and you can analyze it. You tend to be able to do this a lot more easily once you have a lot of data, that is once you're actually a larger company. But we did this at Uber all the time. We basically go and analyze, for example, how many drivers are in a city versus how fast can you get the cars to you? And what you learned is that you actually need quite a lot of cars. You need dozens of cars online at any given time, translating to hundreds of cars in order for it to work. And you can build a graph that actually says when you have a small number of cars, what is the estimated time of arrival versus when you have a lot of cars. And you can build that graph. That's the x-axis. The y-axis is your conversion rate or your ETAs or something like that. And what you actually get is an S-curve. When you read about these threshold points like Facebook's 10 friends in seven days, or you read about the idea that Airbnb thought that they needed 300 listings of which 100 of them needed to be reviewed, what they're really doing is they're picking that point on the curve where there's a little kink that tells you that, okay, at this point, this is when the product is starting to get really valuable. Andrew, how feasible is it to build that core audience through a social network platform versus going to an organic audience like a frat, for example? Well, I think the thing that we're seeing across every single new 
category of products is that you need to be creative and inventive and clever and not just replicate what's already been done in the past. Otherwise, it gets old. These things start to become a lot less valuable. I have a chapter in this theory I've been writing about for quite a few years called the law of shitty click-throughs, which is the idea that whether something's a banner ad or it's email marketing, it's always really good at the beginning, and then it gets worse and worse over time. So the first click-through rates on banner ads was actually over 70%. These days, it's well under 1%. It's like 0.2%. Same with email marketing, same with video advertising, same with all of these. And so you need to do something new, first of all. And then I think the second thing is you need to do something that really matches with the value proposition and the type of product that you're building. So for example, if you're building something for social networks, colleges and high schools are a great place to go. If you're building something for workplace collaboration, you probably go to startups. You probably go to teams, small teams instead of larger companies. And if you're building something in, in Web3, then naturally you have to go to the Discord servers, you have to go to the subreddits and talk to the Twitter influencers that are at the heart of Web3 in order to get it off the ground. So you really have to match the right strategy with the type of product. It is really interesting how much has taken off at college campuses. Tinder, obviously, Facebook, Snap, SnackPass, a company that you're involved with, which is a food ordering platform that incorporates social networking elements. I think it's interesting that another of your companies, Clubhouse, uh, obviously fascinating for so many reasons, did not depend in any way on college students discovering the platform to thrive, at least initially. Is that right? Yeah. So I was one of the first 100 and so users. I think it was user 104. And when we led the Series A investment and I joined the board, the company actually only had 500 daily active users. So it was very small. But what we could see is that the early atomic network Clubhouse was really Paul and Paul's friends in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so we started to see a lot of amazing retention and the amount of time that they spent listening in the app. There were folks who were on average listening over an hour and a half per session, which is just incredible. And so even though it was only 500 daily active users, you could see that retention was really great. And so that proved to me that from a atomic network standpoint, that Paul had successfully stood up an atomic network focused on the Bay Area. In some of the later rounds where we actually doubled down and tripled down on the company, some of the analyses that we did were to ask the Clubhouse team to actually give us data, not just for the US and in aggregate, but also give us the data specifically for Sweden, to give us the data specifically for Nigeria and some of their smaller countries. And what we were looking for is for the networks that are built in some of these other countries, is it true that the retention rates are as good and the engagement is as good as in some of the more mature markets? And what we saw was that the data was fantastic. It showed that you could take the clubhouse network and decompose it into a network of networks, of smaller networks, and analyze each. And it looked like there were multiple atomic networks working. And that helped us really build the conviction to continue to support the company and continue to invest more. I'm somebody who maybe because I work too much and I've got kids, I never spent a lot of time on Clubhouse. But for me, I used it and I've found interesting conversations, but I've also opened it and not found anything and, and just hopped right out, which I think is an experience <laughs> that some of my colleagues have also had. I'm wondering, as somebody who knows so much about not just creating that atomic network, but also adding features that keep pe people coming, can you talk a little bit about how you do that, how you figure out the frequency, and specifically in Clubhouse's case, what it's doing to pull people back in and keep them on the platform? Yeah, just let me zoom out for one second on why it's been so difficult to predict the trajectory of these products that are that are built on network effects. And the reason is because you take a product like eBay, they could have built all the right features in the very earliest years and 
if you are not into collectibles, you would have thought, what's the point of using eBay? I'm not into collectibles and this product only has collectibles. And it would have been easy to generalize to say, well, that means that this is never going to work or this is never going to go broader than what it is. And I think that that's why we often see these products that are being built in niches. Sometimes these niches are younger audiences for kids. So going back to the college audience, I remember when Facebook first came out and everyone was like, why do I need a Facebook account? But it's only until their network around them, their friends, their family, the content creators they're interested in actually arrive that the platforms become really sticky. And so I think that that is what we are going to see with products like Clubhouse and like Substack. I'm also involved with Substack. And I think if you're in the media industry, if you're in politics, if you're in tech, you are excited about what Substack does. But if you're outside of the industry, outside of those interest areas, you just don't get it yet. But they're just doing so much around chefs and cooking. They're doing a ton around comics right now, graphic novels. And I think they're going to light up vertical by vertical all of these different categories. And it's going to become way, way, way more interesting as you go. And so I think Clubhouse is doing very much the same thing. They're very interested in sports right now. They've always been strong in news and politics. And I think that as each of these verticals are built out, it will become more powerful and more compelling to a wider number of people. Speaking of Substack, of course, I follow it because I'm in the media and I also publish a newsletter. (laughs) I think everyone listening will know that it's a company that makes it easy to charge for newsletters. But I keep seeing stories about how the economics mirror that of traditional media and creative platforms where the rewards accrue to a small number of people and everyone else discovers that it's a lot of work for not a lot of money. Just wondering if you have any words of wisdom around whether this is something that's in a reverse course or? Yeah, how to think about that. Well, so I think in general, we've been very interested in, have been have a very robust thesis in the creator economy type idea, which is 15 years ago when the iPhone came out and when Facebook was really just starting to hit its momentum, it used to be that we would use all these platforms primarily just to talk to friends and family. And it hasn't been until the last couple of years that this creator class has become this new thing it's a new form of work that you can do. The Twitch founders, Emmett Shear and Kevin Lin, talked about how magical it is to, first of all, start by just using Twitch as a streaming tool. The fact that you would have other people just watch you game and talk to you while you were gaming was just amazing because it was just an escape from loneliness to be able to also just have the social experience. And so there was, first of all, a non-monetary, just purely delightful utilitarian use case. But what they also found was that a lot of people that did not want to be full-time streamers are very, very excited to make 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month playing video games. I mean, this is something that you don't normally get paid for and off you go. And then I think there is a very, very small percentage of Twitch streamers who then eventually realize that they can do it full-time and they do do it full-time. And then at the top echelons of this world, you can make millions of dollars being a Twitch streamer. And I think Substack is going to follow the same trajectory. For folks that are in the media looking at Substack, they view it as potentially a replacement for a full-time job or a tool for building a media empire. What I would say is, no, I think number one, it's just going to cause a lot more people to write. And some of their top writers are folks that were formerly professors, folks that are tech people that are influential in the industry, and they have become professional writers. And sometimes it's not their only thing. They do it on the side as one of many things that they do. It's just opening up the floodgates in terms of who can actually be a writer on the internet and earn a living from it. I think that's fantastic. And then I think on the flip side, what it's also letting folks do who have big audiences is to build their own business 
as opposed to working for a media corporation. And so I think for the folks that want to do that, it's great. And this is just yet another choice that people can have alongside all the other choices in the economy. I think it's a very special company in, in how it allows that to happen. Andrew, Sam Altman recently tweeted about how Web3 is leading to the unbundling of venture capital. And it seems that Web3 is affecting networks in general. I'm just wondering at the 20,000 foot level, what impact you think Web3 will have on building networks? Well, number one, Web3 has network effects built in its core. So I think it's going to educate a whole new generation of founders about what it takes to start a network effect. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is Bitcoin is valuable because other folks think that Bitcoin is valuable. And even if you were to fork the source code and you were to fork the blockchain and you were to run your own version of Bitcoin, it wouldn't have the same dynamics. It wouldn't have the same value. You need more people to believe in it. Same thing for Bored Apes. Same thing for CryptoPunks. These are valuable because other people think it's valuable. And so because of that, there's network effects built at its core. It means that you also have a cold start problem because if you create a whole new drop of 10,000 NFTs, well, you need to figure out, are you going to go to the right Discord servers and get the right community excited about these? Or alternatively, if you don't, then you can push the NFTs out there and then no one's going to buy them. No one's going to want them. And so there is a cold start problem at the heart of many of the Web3 ideas out there. And I certainly look forward to the update that I'll have to write in five years that replaces all the case studies like Tinder and Dropbox and Slack with all their Web3 versions. Have you thought about how to keep people engaged? Because there are so many people on Discord that are fighting for attention right now. It just seems manic to me, the outsider. Well, I think that what you're seeing, that energy is the energy that I saw in the Web 2.0 days when I first came to the Bay Area or when the iPhone apps thing really took off is we are going to run through every possible variation of product and business model and community as fast as we can. And I think that's very exciting. That's certainly very exciting for the startup ecosystem and for folks that are into technology and want these kinds of products to succeed. I do think though, Connie, that it's not enough to get a bunch of people to come look at an app and and just check it out. They have to actually buy into it. They have to actually engage. If you remember in the early iPhone era, there were so many flashlight apps. There were so many fart apps. There were so many (laughs) gimmicky little things that people would play with and build. And it was just, again, an era of rapid experimentation. But in the end, the products that eventually became world-changing were the ones that not only attracted users and customers, but retained them for the long run. And so I think what we're going to see now is a period in Web3 where every time there's a new project, everyone's going to try it out and everyone's very excited, but it's going to eventually stabilize just as all these other movements stabilize and people are going to become much pickier about which mobile apps they download, which I think they are now. And the leaderboard for all the top apps is going to stabilize and the top ones are going to be the top ones. And I think all that's going to happen with Web3. It's a matter of time. And the ones that are going to win are going to be the ones that can engage users in the long run, whether that means that people will hold on to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin for the long run, or if that means that products like Axie Infinity or products like OpenSea continue to be really, really relevant because people want to engage in them on a daily, weekly, monthly level. That's the other way that the biggest winners will come out. Andrew, I'm sure you get asked this a lot about the 
gamification of everything. That was part of your job at Uber, making sure that you're growing the base of writers all the time. You're obviously a capitalist, but I wonder how you think about when you're advising your startups, growing their base of users in a comparatively healthy way, if that makes much sense. We had, for example, Tim Kendall on the program last year after he appeared in The Social Dilemma, and we talked a lot about all this stuff. And as a parent, especially, it still concerns me sometimes. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think first and foremost, we should all be rooting for all these new startups to emerge because a lot of the startups that I'm seeing right now, for example, that are competing in the world of photos and social media, fundamentally, voice is just more authentic of a medium to listen to somebody and to get to know them. We, we have an unannounced photo app that we're involved with that's all about trying to make sure that you're not just taking pictures of the top 1% of your life, that you are taking pictures of an authentic, real moment in your life. And so I think that there is generally just a huge and very interesting movement right now with these startups that are exploring these ideas. Over time, as they hit scale, we're going to see how this next generation of apps deals with some of these issues. And I think one of the really important ones, by the way, Connie, on all this is that most of the consumer products that we're seeing are not advertising driven. Advertising can provide free access to a lot of products. And I'm certainly a big fan of that. On the other hand, it does put the audience in the role of being sold as impressions and clicks to advertisers. I'm much, much more of a fan of letting consumers just pay for the services that they want to support the creators that they want and for the platforms to maybe take a cut of that. And Web3, by the way, is a fantastic way to do that because creators can actually build NFTs inside of these platforms. And I think that will help solve a lot of the fundamental tensions that have been emerging in social media over the last couple of years. Andrew, just taking a step back, you talked to 30 companies and you're intimately familiar with a lot of these companies. I'm just wondering, what was the most surprising thing you learned from your conversations? Well, I love how idiosyncratic the early years are. Some folks just launched and their products worked right away, like in Tinder's case. Other products took so many different turns and hit so many dead ends, like the Slack team that built a video game first and then had to basically fire everybody and go down to a group of six people and they built Slack out of that. You saw so many different idiosyncratic things. And I think that tells you a little bit about the importance of timing and the importance of luck. And I think that that's something that as an industry, we don't talk very much about, <laughs> you know, the importance of luck in timing and all these things. And I think that's definitely the case. And then I think the other shared thing that I just find fantastic is most of these companies, it wasn't like in year four or five or six that they were changing the product in a really, really significant way. I mean, Facebook was actually very unique in the way that they added the newsfeed a couple of years in and really changed the game. Because I, I would say that most of the founders that I talked to found that their products worked. And then they spent years and years and years just trying to service the demand, just trying to keep up with the market pulling the product away from them. Once you build a successful network effects driven product, that's exactly what you want to see. That's great, Andrew. Well, I am excited to dive into the book and I'm sure a lot of listeners will be as well. Uh, really a pleasure to get to talk to you. Fantastic. Thank you for hosting me and for all these great questions. Thanks for listening, everybody. Just to note that we will not be publishing a podcast next week, but we look forward to seeing you in the new year.